0: This is The Waves. This This is is The the waves. Waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves.
1: This is The Waves. This is The Waves.
0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and, this week at least, brains. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Shannon Paulus, Senior Editor at Slate, covering science and health. I have with me Emily Willingham, a science writer and the author of The Tailored Brain From Ketamine to Keto to Companionship A User's Guide to Feeling Better and Thinking Smarter. This book is fascinating to me because it subtly upends a lot of common sense about what it means to be smart and about what we do to be smarter. And I wanted to have Emily on this podcast because she spent a lot of time thinking and writing about gender and sex. And I think it overlaps in interesting ways with how we think about the brain and how she writes about it. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. How's your brain today?
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, how is my brain? I don't know. You know, COVID's all around it. It's not in me yet, as far as I know, but certainly that's where my brain tends to spend most of its time these days. How are you? I'm doing
0: okay. My brain is overloaded, but functioning. We're going to talk more about the tailored brain with Emily right after this. For Slate Plus listeners, we're going to ask her a few questions about her other book, Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis. Thank you so much for listening. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes too, like last week's discussion about the state of middle-aged women on TV. All right, we're here with Emily to talk about her book, The Tailored Brain, and some of the surprising things you can do to be smarter. Emily, why don't you start us off by talking a little bit about why you decided to write this book?
1: I spent a long time taking on claims, especially when it was related to what people would say about autism and autistic people based on what they, I think, thought were, were common sense ideas and taking a look at those from kind of a different perspective and looking at evidence that might actually underlie those claims and spending a lot of time kind of debunking <laughs> some of these beliefs and myths. And this is an extension of that, kind of expanding it to you know all kinds of brains, not just autistic brains.
0: And one of the interesting things that you've said about autistic brains and how we think about quote unquote improving those is that there are behaviors that autistic people might tend to have that some people
1: aim to get rid of but one of your points is like maybe you don't actually need to get rid of that behavior at all right it's kind of one of those common sense things like like autistic people get from there's a, a process that they use to quote unquote treat autism that sort of one of the things they do is, oh, you can't flap your hands anymore. You're not supposed to flap your hands, which is a form of what is called stimming, which is a way to sort of fizz off kind of an excessive feeling of something like anxiety or excitement and things like that. And it, there was a huge focus on, oh, my God, you got to stop flapping your hands. And I just think, well, why are you focused on that? Because what does flapping hands do to anybody, you know, around you? It's helpful to the person and it's harmless to everyone else. And so it's just kind of this socially accepted construct that nobody bothered to interrogate and to say, you know, why are we spending so much time on this? What is the utility of it? And so that was one of the things I wanted to do was just like look at the brain from another perspective and think, why are you focused on this? kind of improvement for your brain instead of one that really sort of fits more what's helpful for us.
0: Can you talk about what most brain interventions are meant to do? When one of the examples you have in your book is Tom Brady, the football player, advertising this memory game involving butterflies on a screen, and then he says some thing where you have to like identify where the butterflies are and he, he says, you know, this is what makes helps make me a good quarterback is keeping my brain sharp with this kind of game. What is that kind of game advertised to do and and what does it actually do?
1: So the research suggests that basically any any the things that we do, like crossword puzzles or playing games like that, when we do them, the more we do them, the better we get at doing those things. And that in the lingo of the field is considered near transfer. It's just like, yes, you get better at the thing you're doing. You do crossword puzzles enough, you do spelling bee enough, you get better at it, right? But what you don't see is far transfer, which is kind of a globalization of the effect of getting better crossword puzzles and so the idea that Tom Brady would be like, better at throwing the ball and hitting the target just because he's sitting around doing these games all the time is kind of I, I think a redirect from the fact that the man has played football longer than just about any other human on earth has probably thrown more passes than most people and he says, you know He's got a lot of experience doing that. He ought to bloody well be good at it at this point.
0: If you practice football, you get better at football. Exactly. Well, I mean, he does anyway. (laughs) Right, right. For me, it's an open question. Yeah, seriously.
1: You know, I could go try it, but the shoulders aren't in it these days.
0: I'm wondering, one of the things that I found really fascinating about your book, and the reason I wanted to have you on this podcast, which is about gender, is you kind of offer a view of intelligence that, like, gets us away from this sense of, like, oh, well, like, I play these butterfly games and I get smart and then I use that smartness to go play football. Can you talk a little bit about what you think people get wrong when they think about, oh, I would like to become more intelligent?
1: I spent a couple of chapters on this early in the book. Um, one of the, the the first chapters I'm examining sort of the history of intelligence testing and what people think of when they talk about cognition, which is your thinking skill and why people are so focused on things that they think will make them smarter, that will enhance their intelligence in some way. Why are there clubs that are you know predicated on scores that you get on IQ tests and things like that? When, First of all, you're not going to accrue a lot of benefit even if you did knock up your IQ point by a couple 3 points or whatever is claimed by some of these things. And second of all, what kind of defines us as a species isn't, you know, are you in the second or third you know standard deviation from the norm for your intelligence test scores, but we're kind of more defined on our a social basis and the Our ability to interact with each other, read each other's emotions and feelings, respond to that, and make the connections that we make. But you never see people offering pills that, you know, will improve that, which is the thing that if you look around us right now, is something that we might be able to use, (laughs) you know, to improve our connections and be more positively social than we are right now. Do you think that there is a supplement that people could take
0: to, you know, have a little bit more empathy when they're tweeting or, (laughs) and if yes, how do we distribute that?
1: Yeah, that supplement is called whatever that that app is. It keeps you off of Twitter (laughs) as the one. No, there's not. I mean, people would say, you know, oxytocin gets name checked a lot as the quote-unquote love hormone. But what I think of it as more is an in-group identity hormone. So, you know, it might connect you more to people near you or with whom you identify, but it's also an exclusionary effect because then you exclude the people with whom you don't identify and we've got enough of that going on. And what you really can do is... I'm going to use the word mindfully now, you know, you can be aware of where you might have gaps in that and do something about it. It's not fixed and it's not, you know, a, a, a trait. It's something that you can do some work on and pause and stop yourself and think, well, this is a human. What would they be feeling right now, given where they're from? Put yourself in their shoes and try to understand it. That's a practice that you can use, but it doesn't come in a bottle.
0: How do we get better at empathy?
1: So what I just said is one way, but you have to think about it, right? So I spend a whole chapter on that, how you can become aware of where you might have gaps or where you're reflexively. And when I say you, I mean me probably, (laughs) but where one, you know, reflexively does things like on Twitter, where you dunk on somebody because you're just being a smart ass. Like if you're naturally a smart ass, like me, for example, you know, it's like, whoa, here's a joke you can make. And instead, put yourself in the other person's shoes. Try to see where they're coming from. They're a human, right? They're not I mean, unless it's a bot, of course, but you know actual people. And it takes a few things that you have to do. You have to You know, exercise some executive function, which means you filter yourself and you stop yourself and you attend to yourself and think, well, what am I doing right now that's considering where the other person is coming from and how will they feel? How are they feeling now? So, you know, there's a whole list of things you can go through, but it does take practice, I think, if it's not natural to you.
0: I think we have this conception that being on Twitter and being on social media is just really bad for our brains, or at least. I do now that I've been stuck in my house during the Omicron surge, just kind of scrolling and scrolling. But based on what you've said, I'm wondering if Twitter can actually be an opportunity to help strengthen our brains in that way.
1: That's also a good question. I I think like anything else, this is a tool, right? And you can use tools for good or for ill. You can use a hammer to hammer a nail or you can bash somebody on the head with it, right? And so Twitter, people do sort of decry it because it can be a cesspool, but If you make some really conscious decisions about how you're going to use it and the people with whom you will interact on it, it can be a huge boon. There are lots of communities that would not otherwise have found themselves if it weren't for social media. They would not have found each other and made the connections they have made. The disability community comes to mind for me, and this is a way for them to connect and collect and to make a difference, which they do.
0: A couple of other things that you talk about in your book as ways to build empathy and boost your brain are, you know, hanging out with other people, having conversations, or even just reading books. There's a wonderful line in your intro that I'm going to paraphrase, which says, "I'm glad you're reading this book because it means your brain and my brain are interacting," which I love. Why do you think we don't think of things like reading and having a phone call with a friend as quote-unquote, brain-boosting activities?
1: I think because, again, there's been such a focus on uh, you've got to be like Bradley Cooper in Limitless and be somebody who's the smartest person in the room who foresees everything before everybody else and that kind of thing, with less emphasis on what we ultimately, I think, especially as you get older, realize are the important things in life, which are the people you love, the people with whom you are connected, the people whom you help and who help you and the the amazing thing about a human being human is that we can make those connections with people who are no longer even here i mean i have family members who passed away you know a long time ago i can still connect with them in a way by looking at their letters that they've left and things like that there are Authors whom we love who died 200, 300 years ago, we can go back and connect with their minds still. You and I, you know, we haven't seen each other in years and yet we're still like our brains are connecting right now thanks to, you know, the uh, digital age. And the fact that we find so many tools to make that happen and have been using them since humans were human says to me that that's so much more important than just being the most brilliant person in a room.
0: It's been such a long time since we could get together at a science writers conference. I can't even remember the last time I went to a conference with other people in real life. I know. I
1: know.
0: One of the impulses I have as you're saying all of that and that I had as I was reading your book is like, oh, well, like storytelling and collaboration are so much more important than we give them credit for. And being a football player like Tom Brady is kind of like put on a pedestal in our our lives and like wow, this is like another manifestation of the patriarchy. Would you agree with that? Or am I like pushing a little too much of that on sexism?
1: No, I think that there, I think that there's definitely a pathway there that those two things can certainly be dots that connect, um, coming from science like I do and you do as well with your background you know that we tend to put scientists on the lone scientists on a pedestal right and up until quite recently those lone scientists were always white men to the exclusion of everybody else who does all the work and the the fact is is that human ideas don't come usually from just the one human and you get a, a Great deal of both diversion and convergent creativity when you're interacting with other brains and bringing lots of things to the table, and even solving tiny problems that accumulate right into some big solution. No one person is doing that, and so it it is important that we make those connections. And if you exclude, and this I think is where your idea comes in, if you exclude people from the table right? Especially if they're bringing a different perspective because they are a woman or because a white woman or a person of color or they are non-binary. They're bringing all these perspectives to the table that you may not have considered if you're not somebody from one of those communities. And that can open up whole new ways of thinking about things. And if you don't have them there, you never open up those opportunities. And so, yes, I do think that there are three lines there.
0: A whole network of brains is very logically smarter than one brain working alone. And yet, we've seen this very clearly in the pandemic, it always helps us, or we tend to want to put one person at the top or the center and say, oh, just listen to Dr. Fauci. Oh, just like let Biden, Biden's fixing this, Biden's not fixing this.
1: Right. And the pandemic is a good example because the whole reason we knew so quickly what this virus was and what its sequence was and all of these other things is not because one brain went out and got that information and pulled all that together. It was because a global community right, came together and pulled that together and did that work together and then put that out to the world. There wasn't just like one amazing man, you know, (laughs) who took care of all that for everybody. Right. And we still have, you know, maybe the people at the top
0: are disproportionately men, but if, if they're smart, they're working with teams that include tons of perspectives.
1: Oh, yes, yes, exactly. And the perspectives, I mean, I think this is, this point has been made as well. If you're not looking at the perspective of somebody who's not a scientist, who isn't in public health, and who isn't committed to some of the public health, um, you know, actions that are being recommended, you are completely misunderstanding how a lot of people in the public are going to react to that kind of stuff. And you've got to bring people to the table who have that understanding.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk more about brains, how science is done, and collaboration. Hi, Waves listeners. This is Christina Kotarucci, one of your hosts. We are planning an episode for the fifth anniversary of the Women's March in D.C. And if you were there or at one of the satellite marches somewhere else, we want to hear about your experience. What's your strongest memory from that day? Record a voice memo, keep it short, under a minute, and send it to thewaves@slate.com, and we might put it in the show. Thanks. We can't wait to listen.
2: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas, you've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution
1: is Plush Care,
0: Emily, I wanted to ask you a few questions about why it might be helpful to have a feminist lens when one is doing brain science or analyzing brain science. Um, and I wanted to start off by asking you about a 1995 feature you talk about in your book that ran in Newsweek, and it was titled The New Science of the Brain, and it came to some interesting conclusions about how men's brains and women's brains are supposedly different.
1: Um,
0: So to start off, do men and women have fundamentally different brains?
1: I I will say that you couldn't necessarily just take a brain and look at it structurally or otherwise in a lot of different ways and say, well, this came from a man versus this came from somebody who identifies as a woman. You, You... can't, but there, there are lots of different ways, right, to examine sex and gender, but it, none of it's a guarantee. There are studies that show that under certain hormone regimes, you know, you will, the the behaviors and interaction with the brain architecture and that kind of thing, you will certainly show, or you can show specific behaviors related to that, but there's so much overlap in the behaviors and we bring so much cultural baggage to how we interpret them and filter them and say, well, this is feminine versus this is masculine and they're not cross-cultural. It's not like a uniform kind of behavior that you see in everybody who, you know, identifies as a woman versus everybody who identifies does matter anything like that. And so, you know, the short answer to your question is no. <laughs> and the longer answer to your question is, is that, you know, I did write a book about penises and this kind of spectrum that you can have of what sex is and what gender is. The brain is even more so the, you know, the spectrum and the overlap and the different, um, I would say, facets of what we express, There are lots of things I do that people I think would describe as masculine. I am a woman. (laughs) And those are manifestations of my brain.
0: Yeah. In particular, this Newsweek piece kind of opens with talking about how men's brains and women's brains are different. And one of the pieces of evidence is a small study in which, you know, they say women react more um, emotionally to nonsense words. They'll just have an emotional reaction if you say something. And that was true in 58% of the women in the study, but 42% of the women had the more, quote-unquote, masculine response to nonsense words. So you could say that there's a little bit of a difference there, but to really make a big deal out of it is
1: stretching things. It, it does sound like it, right? Because if it's 58% of women, that means, you know— Almost half of them did not have that response to it. And the other thing is, is you know, what are you defining as an emotional response when you talk about that? Because, of course, I mean, not in that specific study, but in general, when we think of emotions and we say well, women are so emotional, I mean, you know, there's a valence to what you're saying there, right? Because you're sidelining certain kinds of emotions as not belonging to women and attributing other emotions as being specifically a woman thing when all of these things are emotions, right? Like anger is an emotion, sadness, you know, all of these things are still emotions. And, you know, just because you ascribe them in your mind specifically as belonging to, you know, women versus men, et cetera, it doesn't make it true. <laughs> and so... We have emotional reactions to just about everything. Nonsense words, though. How do you feel about them? <laughs> What's your reaction to that, Shannon? Because I would just laugh. Is that an emotion? Because it just seems kind of funny to me. <laughs> right.
0: I think I would maybe express some confusion or be concerned that I had misunderstood. Is that is that emotional or is that me Uh, trying to be a rational and collaborative human and, you know, get the data out of whoever is talking to me
1: (laughs) to make sense. Um, For some people, the answer to your question would depend on whether they interpret you as being a man or a woman.
0: Right, right. You could say the pitch of someone's voice or like, oh, well, they were wearing pink. So (laughs) they must be emotional. I want to talk about a really surprising thing that I learned from your book. And this is from a segment on CBD, which is absolutely everywhere. You can ingest it. You can rub it on various body parts. You can um, do all kinds of things with CBD these days. And you looked on what the data says on whether it actually, quote unquote, works. And you write that in some studies, CBD seems to have an effect on stress and anxiety, but that that's an effect that tends to emerge in animals without ovaries. Why would ovaries change how cbd acts in the body
1: my inference from that it, it was interesting because they you know they a lot of the studies of cbd are done in humans without ovaries and then they do in the rodents they overectomize them so they take the ovaries out or they use you know rats with uh, Testes and their mes- ovaries produce, you know, a couple hormones. It's estrogen and progesterone. And I can only infer that there's some threshold that that sets at which, you know, you CBD just can't, you know, enhance the effect any more than you know the existing thresholds with those hormones. Whereas, I guess if you're not making those hormones, you've got a lower threshold where CBD can have some kind of an effect. Is the only you know thing I can draw from that from what I saw, but I just thought it was interesting that there had been all these studies and that there wasn't kind of this inclusion of people who are producing estrogen and progesterone, you know, during at least certain times of life, and what effects they might have. There's some evidence that you know certain ser- sex steroid hormones can kind of ameliorate anxiety and make you feel more relaxed, and some of them kind of add to aggression, and so it seems like there would be some either enhancing or inhibitory effect to anything CBD is doing.
0: I mean, I guess you weren't there. You didn't do the studies, but I'm just, no one was like, Hey, what if we try this in some animals that have ovaries still or in some humans that have ovaries still?
1: Yeah. So yeah, I can't speak to the whole field, but it does kind of reflect what I wrote about in my other book fallacy, which is that it it does, this is another situation of, well, who's at the table are there people at the table going, well, have you looked at the ones who have ovaries? I have ovaries and CBD doesn't do anything for me. You know, I might say, I have I don't really know, but I mean, if I'm at the table and I've tried it and I have ovaries and I notice all the work we're doing is in animals that don't have them, maybe I'd bring that up if you put me at the table. You know what I mean? And so it's another argument for having different life experiences and perspectives at the table. So you might highlight there's an absence here if that hasn't happened already.
0: I also had an interesting response when I was reading that section because I take CBD, and I enjoy taking CBD, and I even have these little theories about, like, the CBD websites encourage you to, like, experiment on yourself and, like, take different dosages so you figure out what dose is right for you. So, like, I've I've done that, and... What do you think is happening there when someone says, well, I, you know, I have ovaries as far as I know they're in there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What could be happening there?
1: Well, I can say that, first of all, anytime you're looking at stuff like that, the studies like that, that's an average effect, right? And so there's a distribution and there will be people there who are expert people or rodents. I'm sorry, rats are not people. I make that point so many times. So, you know, there will be, you know, subjects in there that are not having a response and some that are and some that are falling somewhere in between. And so, yes, it's absolutely possible at an individual level that people are experiencing a genuine physiological response to that that doesn't represent the average response. So that would be how i would start <laughs> to answer that question
0: mm-hmm. and that seems like a pretty good argument for you can imagine if i were like a star football player i could now get paid
1: tons of money to go advertise cbd and talk about
0: how great it is but that might not be worth listening to
1: <laughs> right so that, that that's a problem with testimonial yeah so i wrote about that a little bit in the book too it's a thing to look out for if you're, you're assessing the claims about. um uh, something that's being promised to help your brand in some way, well, you know, is that claim being made just by like Tom Brady? Because I'm not—I mean, you know—really evidently not Tom Brady in any way, shape, or form, and uh, you know, he's just one human being. So those average results, you know, you can be really informative if you really want to try to find out what's going on.
0: I also should say one of my own personal theories about why I liked the CBD is because having that little ritual of taking it before bed kind of like signals to me mentally that it's time to wind down. I've been doing that like versus having a beer at night sometimes. So I think that it's brought net good effects beyond necessarily what, what it's doing chemically in my brain.
1: It's interesting you said that because I actually have a strong opinion about the relevance of ritual and its meaning in terms of even the substances that we use. I think that, it's almost more important to have the ritual than to focus on what the risks are of some of these substances people worry about, like alcohol or CBD, you know, if you're not just completely overdoing it. But it's a part of a ritual that you're leading into your evening, the signals that certain things are about to happen. It's almost like a form of sleep hygiene. And then you get into that mindset and your brain gets ready for it. And if you don't have the ritual, that could actually, I think cause the kind of stress that could be more harmful than whatever the substances that people are using for it. So that's a, a little line of thinking of mine.
0: I like that endorsement and that also tells me maybe I should stop paying for the higher strength CBD and go back to a lower strength. (laughs) one.
1: (laughs) cannot speak to that. I'm not very good with that kind of thing. I don't, I never have really even liked pot like back in the day and I'm just like, it just was not, it didn't do for me what it was doing for other people. So if I were a you know, a testimonial person, I would be like, this didn't work for me. Don't use it, you know?
0: And yet they never include those testimonials <laughs> I when they're selling stuff. Nope. You, one no one's to, asking me. One has to wonder why. <laughs> I have one more thing I wanted to ask before we wrap up. Can you talk a little bit about this theory um, that you briefly mentioned at the beginning of the book that brains are made of sperm? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think that basically kind of sums it up. They just had this like weird idea that there are so many like weird ideas about, you know, what brains consisted of before we've gotten our current idea. And even still, we have so much work left to do, as you probably learned from, I think, just that chapter alone. But yeah, they used to just think that it was made of sperm that got into the brain from the testes that the thing is, is I'm not quite sure what happened if you didn't have testes and what your brain was made of then. But I think it's possible that maybe everybody just thought gonads in general kind of had the sperm in them. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not an expert on that by any means. And so it may have just been that they just thought all gonads had testes and then they went up the spinal cord and made your brain. Can you imagine though, if your brain were made, first of all, it just sounds kind of wiggly, and that alone is kind of disturbing to me, so. Just the, there, so much ooze, like. I know. <laughs> just a lot of, like, I don't know, the little flagella, and then they're just like, I don't know. It just isn't.
0: <laughs> if sperm brain is not an argument for running your ideas by, like, a number of people that have different anatomies and different kinds of experiences,
1: I don't know what it's. <laughs> Find someone who's seen a brain. Yes. <laughs> or you start to bitballing about this. <laughs>
0: Before we head out, we wanted to give some recommendations. Emily, what are you recommending?
1: My recommendation is to behold a tree. And I know that sounds kind of strange, but when my oldest son was a preschooler, his favorite Pixar movie, and I know that this doesn't make anybody's top ten list, was A Bug's Life. And one of the lines from that, and I'm paraphrasing, is, you know, this this tiny seed made that entire tree. And I think one of the things I focus on in the book is the influence of nature and the effect of awe, it kind of getting you outside of yourself, outside of your head and, and into the moment and appreciating what's around you. And I think trees are pretty accessible to most people or even plants to look at and behold and just contemplate that the instructions for that whole thing that you're looking at were inside a very, very tiny little seed at one point. And now you've got this giant complex organism that does so much for us. I think, you know, just behold a tree when you can.
0: I love that. Mindfulness is something that I struggle with, especially in like the, oh, you should like meditate for 10 minutes a day formulation. (laughs) But (laughs) beholding a tree, I can do that. (laughs) That's an assignment I can take. Um, On that very lovely note, I'm going to recommend something a little materialistic. I'm going to recommend wearing perfume. And in particular, I have been really liking Marc Jacobs' Daisy Dream perfume. But this is very much less a recommendation for that perfume and more of a recommendation for just finding a perfume scent that you like and that makes you happy. And you don't have to get a whole bottle. Often, you can get samples when you order other kinds of makeup, or if you are popping into stores these days, you can pop into Sephora and, and pick up a sample. Um, spritzing on perfume, even when I've been at home in COVID isolation, has just really turned my mood around. Um, it It's actually offered me a little bit of mindfulness in kind of a similar way, because... I can't really change my surroundings right now, but I can change how I smell, and
1: that is something. Oh, that's a nice idea. I mean, smell is such a powerful thing, right? It's so evocative for us, and we. I think it's absolutely a great idea to use it to a positive effect that way. I might just go, like, make bacon smell or something.
0: Yes. <laughs> like, I endorse
1: any kind of smell right biscuits. now. Biscuits. <laughs> biscuits smell. Yeah find your happy smell.
0: <laughs> I also have been really into like the Pillsbury cookie dough rolls in the pandemic where you can just cut off a couple slices of cookie dough and bake them and then it fills your
1: house with that aroma. Aww, see, the smell is so important. You know, well, good ones. <laughs> That's our show this
0: week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Susan Matthews and myself are editorial directors, with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and
1: place.
2: Step into the world of power no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel, and a sitting state Supreme Court justice,